Okay, good evening, uh, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we're going to go ahead and get started with our Bible study. We are in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll do verses 1 through 12 tonight. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. So we'll read our passage and then pray, and then we'll have our Bible study. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, Lord, to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand, uh, Lord, what it means to judge, Lord, uh, not in the way that the world takes this, but that, Lord, we would uh, take it uh, the way that you mean it according to your word. Lord, that we would not judge as the hypocrites do, who pronounce uh, judgments against sin, but then go and practice those very sins. So, Lord, we pray that we would not do that, but that you would give to us proper discernment, Lord, to understand good and evil, Lord, to be able to make proper judgments in this world. Uh, that are consistent and aligned with your will. Lord, we pray that you would give us all good things, Lord, knowing that uh, if we ask, we will receive. And Lord, we ask tonight that you would give to us wisdom, Lord, wisdom and understanding. Lord, knowing that you are the source and fount of all wisdom and of all knowledge, and that, Lord, you will give it freely to those who ask. And so, Lord, this is what we desire more than anything else, is that you would give to your people, Lord, a wise and discerning heart, Lord, that we might understand your will and, Lord, do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, be with us tonight and help us as we study. And, Lord, we pray for your blessing to be upon us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. And I mentioned on Sunday that Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, is probably today the most known verse in the Bible and also the most misquoted, misunderstood, taken out of context verse in the Bible. Because everyone will throw out this statement, uh, do not judge so that you will not be judged, right? But what does Jesus mean by this, right? When he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, the way that is commonly understood today and the way that it's used in the culture as people banty this about uh, is that you cannot make any pronouncements concerning sin, concerning my life, concerning what I am doing, you let me live the way I want to live. I'll let you live the way that you want to live. And let's all just get along and not make any declarations, any judgments 
concerning good and evil. So if I want to live a profane life according to the Bible, then you just leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. And if you say anything about it, people will accuse you of being what? Judgment. You're judgmental. You're judging me, and that's contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible says, Jesus says, don't judge anyone, right? That's what they will say. But he cannot mean that we can never make a pronouncement, a declaration, a discernment concerning good and evil. Right. And even that we cannot apply this to situations that we see, right? When it arises within a person, when we see someone living a lifestyle contrary to the teaching of the Bible, that we are forbidden from saying that this is sin. That's how people commonly take it today. So it promotes moral relativism, moral relativism, where I can do whatever I want and no one can say anything about me because Jesus says that we're never supposed to judge others and this is how Christians are supposed to be. We just love everyone and we don't judge. No judgments, just love. But this is not love and this is not judgment according to the Bible, right? According to the Bible. Here, it's obvious if you read the context, he's not talking about not making any judgments at all. He means it in the sense of don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite when you judge because the way you judge is the way that God's going to judge you, right? So he doesn't mean never judge, but don't judge as a hypocrite who condemns sin, who says you should not do this. You should not practice adultery, but then he goes and practices adultery, who says you should not steal, but then he himself goes and commits theft, and he's doing these types of things. So we cannot be like the Pharisees, like the hypocrites who make these kinds of judgments and who do it in this hypocritical way. So we have to understand it rightly. This is a verse that people take out of context and they twist it and distort it to support and promote their own sinful, wicked life, right? And to silence anyone who would question the way that they're living. That's what they're doing. So they're using the Bible to promote sin which is the exact opposite of what the Bible does. The right. Bible is never to be used to promote sin, but the Bible teaches us to renounce ungodliness, to turn away from sin and to live a godly and righteous life. And if we're going to do that, we have to be able to make a discernment between good and evil, between right and wrong, right? Between truth and error. And for us to say, this is wrong, this is sin, this is evil, is not passing judgment contrary to what Jesus is saying. That is judging in the true and proper sense, right? We have to judge in the right way. And even Jesus expects us, and we'll look at verses concerning this, Jesus and the prophets and the uh, apostles expect us to be able to judge with righteous judgment. So we have to be able to do that. Okay, so chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do not judge that you will not be judged. For in the way you judged, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here, Jesus forbids judging as a hypocrite, right? A hypocrite, one who is judging others, who is condemning and accusing them, 
but then himself is not applying his same standard to himself, right, into the way that he's living. So he's very uh, critical, maybe even hypercritical, right, of other people and the way that they live, but then he's not critical of himself, right? He does whatever he wants and is not applying the same standard or the same measure to himself. That's what Jesus is forbidding, is to judge in this way as a hypocrite, right, as a hypocrite. Now, the reason why this is so important is because in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, right? We have to judge with righteous judgment, right? And if we're judging people, then the same standard of judgment that we're passing on others is what is going to pass on to us. So if, for example, we're condemning adultery, okay, that's good and right, and we should condemn adultery, but if at the same time I'm condemning adultery, I'm practicing adultery, then what's going to happen to me on the day of judgment? You're going to be judged, and God is going to bring this forward and say, you knew that this was a sin because you were condemning other people for committing this sin, but you weren't preaching to yourself, right? How can you tell others that it's a sin to commit adultery while you yourself are practicing the same sin or the one who steals, right? Pronouncing judgments against thieves and those who steal, but then you yourself are stealing. And God on the day of judgment will say, you hypocrite, how can you pronounce this against others, but then you yourself do it? Now, here the key is that not that we should just never say anything, but that we should be consistent, that we should live righteously. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying, well, as long as we don't judge anyone or make any pronouncements about sin, then on the day of judgment, God's just going to let us into heaven and we got nothing, nothing to worry about. We'll get a free pass. No, that's not what he means. He means it in the sense that we need to practice righteous judgment. We need to understand good and evil, sin and righteousness. First, we need to practice that ourselves in our own life. Reject what is evil, turn away from evil, and then do what is good. And then after we have first applied it to our own life, then we're able to help others, to help them see clearly, and to help them also turn away from evil and do good. And that's what he says in verse 3. He uses this illustration, which is just completely ridiculous, right, to think about, right, the way he's portraying it. We would all say this person is an utter fool if he was trying to do this. Your brother has a speck in his eye, okay? Why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log protruding out of your own, right? How can you do that? How can you be so critical to see a speck? Now, is it good to have a speck in your eye? No. No, it's not good to have a speck in your eye. So the whole man, the complete man, the perfect man, is the one that hasn't doesn't have either a log or a speck. But if you've got a log protruding out of your eye, how are you going to be able to help your brother get the speck out of his own eye? You can't do it. What needs to happen? First, get the log out of your own eye, repent of your own sin, deal with your sin, and then you can go and help your brother with his. You can help him get the speck out of his own eye. And that's what Jesus says. You hypocrite, right? You hypocrite. So here again, he's dealing with hypocritical judgment, hypocritical judgment. Take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
you have to take the log out of yours first, then you will be able to help your brother get the speck out of his own eye. Now, of course, he cannot mean here that we have to have perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. He can't mean that, okay? Because if the standard is perfectly righteous, then are we ever able going to be able to help our brothers? No, because no one will ever attain to that. So he means that we are seeking to live a godly life, that we have no known massive sins that we're committing, that we're practicing, that yes, we have our daily faults, we have our daily sins, we have the things that we're overcoming, right? But we're not living in sin, right? We're not being a hypocrite. We're not practicing any type of sin, then we're able to help others, right? Then we're able to help others. That's what is the expectation. So we should all seek to live a godly life, a righteous life. We should be doing that, living blamelessly in this present world. And then as we're doing that, and our brother needs help, he has a speck in his eye, then we should be willing to help him. And then the same of our brother toward us, right? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness or meekness. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 to 3. So this is the way we ought to be in the Christian life. We don't want specks in our eyes because it's painful. It's not good. And that needs to be removed. But the proper way to remove it is to first deal with your own sins and then you'll be able to help your brother deal with his sins. Okay, a couple of passages. First, Romans chapter 2. Romans 2 is dealing with the same thing in, in relationship to the Jews who had the knowledge of the Word of God, who were very quick to pronounce judgment upon the Gentiles, but then they themselves were committing the same sins. Right Now, what they were saying about the Gentiles was true, but it was also true of them. That's the problem. You're saying this about others, but you're not applying it to yourself, right? You're being a hypocrite in the way that you judge. And this is what in Romans chapter two, the apostle is dealing with. He, in chapter one of Romans, he condemns the world, all men, the Gentiles, because of their sin. And then in chapter two, he's dealing with the Jews, that you Jews who think you're better than other men, you're not actually better than other men. In some ways, you're actually worse than them. Because you have knowledge, they are in ignorance, you have knowledge, and though you have knowledge and you pretend to be righteous, actually you're committing the same sins that they commit and even in a greater severity because you ought to know better, right? You ought to know better. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the richness of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. The reason they have no excuse is because, yes, you are making some accurate judgments concerning sin, and you're saying it is true 
that the judgment of God is going to come on those who practice such things. But when you're making that pronouncement, who are you condemning? Yourself. You're condemning yourself because you, the judge, are practicing the very same thing. The very thing you condemn is what you are practicing. Therefore, on the day of judgment, you will be condemned according to your own words. Your own mouth will condemn you. That's what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 7. The judgment that you use is what will be measured out to you. If you're judging in this way, this hypocritical way, but you are making proper announcements and proclamations concerning sin, but then you're practicing that sin, how are you going to escape the judgment of God? It's impossible. You're not going to. You're not going to escape. You will receive the very wrath of God. Also, chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. Romans 2, 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So this is the problem with the Jews. They're hypocrites. They have the law. They rely on the law. They boast in God. They, they know what's good and right. They've been instructed by the law of God. They are confident that they themselves are a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children. They are the ones in terms of Jew versus Gentile. They are the teachers. The Gentiles are the children. They are in light. The Gentiles are in darkness, right? They have access to the law of God, to the word of, to the word of God, so that they know the difference between good and evil, right? It's been clearly taught to them by the law of God. And they are saying, you should not steal, right? You should not steal. This is a sin against God. And is that true and correct? Yes. Yes, it's true and right and accurate to say you shall not steal. But is it good to tell other people you shall not steal if you yourself are committing theft, going about stealing? Of course not, right? How are you going to escape the judgment of God? If you are pronouncing the condemnation of God because of theft, but then you yourself are committing thievery. You're teaching others, but you're not teaching yourself, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. Right. Get the log out of your eye, then you can go and help your brother get the speck out of his eye. Teach yourself first and practice what you teach, and then go and help others. You who say that one should not commit adultery. Is that true? Should we not commit adultery? Of course we shouldn't commit adultery. So that's good. It's good to teach that. But is it enough to teach it? No, we have to practice it. If you teach it, but then you commit it, you condemn yourself. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, 
yet through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. This is what Jesus is talking about. When he says, do not judge, lest ye be judged, he means it in this sense. He means it in the sense of judging as a hypocrite, which was common amongst the Jewish people and is common still today amongst so-called Christians, okay. those who claim to be Christians and who have access to the word of God, to the word of God. He cannot mean, again, that we can never make a pronouncement about a person, that we can never discern and understand between this person and that person. The Bible expects us to be able to do that. Even the very context in verse six, when he says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Is he talking about literal dogs or is he talking about people? He's talking about people. There are some people who are like dogs and there are other people who are like swine. And whenever we identify someone as a dog or a hog, we should not give to them the holy things of God. Well, doesn't that necessitate that we judge them? That we make some judgment and have an understanding of what kind of a person they are, what kind of character they are, right? Their maliciousness of this person so that I avoid them and I don't give the holy things of God to this person. So even in the immediate context, he cannot mean that we don't make any discernment or judgment concerning people because how can we identify someone as a hog or a dog if we can't judge them? We have to be able to judge them to arrive to this conclusion. Or also, what about verse 15? Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Right. Well, what does that necessitate? Judgment. You have to be able to look at them, examine them, and make some judgment, a discernment concerning this person and realize he's telling me one thing. He's telling me that he's a teacher from God. He's telling me that he's a true believer. He's telling me that I should listen to him and follow him and that he's going to instruct me in the will of God. But when I look at his life and I see his deeds, what his life is saying does not match up with what his words are saying. Right. So I have to discern and see that this man is a false teacher coming to me in sheep's clothing, but actually he is a ravenous wolf. Doesn't that necessitate judgment? We have to be able to judge a person in order to come to these conclusions. So the immediate context of chapter 7, even in the same sermon, he cannot mean never make a judgment concerning anyone. Otherwise, you can't know if someone's a hog or a dog, and you can't know if someone is a false teacher. You have to be able to look at them, examine their life, look at it in light of the Bible, and then right. determine whether this person is a hog or a dog or a false teacher. And look at their life, their deeds. What are their deeds telling me about them? And not only are we to do this for hogs, dogs, and false teachers, we have to do this all the time. Constantly, we have to be able to do this to make proper judgments. When conflict arises within the church, you've got one side saying this, you have the other side saying something else. What do you have to be able to do? You have to be able to look at the evidence Hear what everyone is saying, go to the Bible and discern and determine who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And then the Bible expects us to side with those who are in the right and to rebuke those who are in the wrong. Right. right? We have to be able to do this. A couple of passages. First, John chapter 7.
John chapter 7. Verse 24, John seven twenty four. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In a gear, who's he talking about? What's he talking about? He's not talking about food, drink, uh, houses, which, which is a good house to buy. He's talking about people, right. judging people. Don't judge by appearance, merely by appearance, but judge with Righteous judgment, meaning you have to judge according to the Bible, right. which is you'll know them by their fruit. You have to know what good fruit is, what's bad fruit, and then you have to be able to look at a person and determine whether they are good and true or whether they are bad and false. 1 Corinthians 13. Corinthians. I think I wrote my reference down wrong. You guys know the one I'm looking for. Okay, let's go to Proverbs 18. <clears throat> Proverbs 18. Proverbs chapter 18. And verse 17. Proverbs 18, 17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. So there, a person is pleading his case. He seems right, but you have to get all the facts, right? You have to go and examine others and you have to examine him rightly and you have to hear the other side. Isn't this what happens? You've got two people, they're at odds. One person gives you his side of the story. And after you hear the one side of the story, you're fully convinced that this guy's in the right and the other person is in the wrong. This is the way it works. But don't you have to go and hear the other side? Hear what they're saying so that you can know whether or not this person is telling me the truth or not. You have to examine both sides and every fact has to be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then we have to be able to come to the right judgment, the right conclusion concerning these types of things. So that's what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. He forbids hypocritical judgment, but he promotes righteous judgment. We have to practice righteous judgment and not the judgment of hypocrites, okay? Verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Here, Jesus is warning us that there are going to be men in this world who are like dogs and who are like swine. Now, certainly all sinners are in some degree like dogs or swine, right? And he doesn't mean this in a, a cute, cuddly dogs or pot belly pigs. He means this in a derogatory way, right. that dogs and swine are filthy animals, mangy creatures, and there are men who are like this, who are filthy animals, who are mangy creatures in this way, in that their sin is so severe and so advanced that you have to avoid these kinds of people. They are malicious, they are foul, right? They are violent. And if you 
give your holy things to them, they're going to trample you under their feet and they're going to turn and tear you to pieces, right? There's nothing noble or honorable about walking into a Muslim mosque and standing up in front of all of them and saying Muhammad's a false prophet. Because what are they going to do to you if you do that? They're going to kill you, right? That's There's nothing noble and righteous about that. It's That would be self-murder. To go intentionally. Now, if you're in a Muslim country and you're preaching the gospel and word gets out and they come and attack you and there's nothing you can do about it, that's one thing. But to go into the middle of them in order to provoke them in this way is contrary to what he's saying here. Why would you go into that situation knowing that these are violent, malicious people? Are you going to go to an ISIS meeting and go and tell them there that you people are all going to hell and you're all false prophets? That your prophet is a false prophet and a liar and he was a pedophile and all the things that are true about Muhammad? Well, what are they going to do to you? They're going to kill you. They're going to turn and tear you to pieces. So don't give these holy things to these kinds of people. And if you're preaching the gospel to someone and they become belligerent, they become vile, they begin to blaspheme God, then what should you do at that point? Walk away from them. Walk away, shake the dust off your feet, and then don't give them anything else, right? Because they're manifesting their reprobate heart, that they are wicked people. And if you continue, then they're going to turn and attack you. They're going to turn and attack you and trample you and devour you. They might kill you, right? So there's nothing, uh, it's unnecessary to needlessly throw our life away, to needlessly suffer persecution, to have someone slug you in the face, to have someone beat you up, to have someone shoot at you, right? Just because you're provoking them or they're provoked by the gospel, right? Again, if you're preaching the gospel and you don't know the person, though that's one thing. But if this person has already manifested a hatred for God and the things of God, and he's a blasphemer of God, then wipe the dust off your feet and have nothing to do with him. Don't continue to give to him the holy things of God, because if you do, he's going to turn and attack you. So we have to be able to recognize this. There are people who will manifest that they are hogs and dogs. Now, we're not talking about someone who has a level of humility or teachability who's interested, who wants to know more. And there may be some people at times who will say, you know what, this is not for me, but they still will be kind and gracious in a sense, and they will walk away. But there are those people out there who they hate God so much, and they love their sin so much, that if you begin to talk to them about the things of God, they'll begin to swear, they'll become very violent, they'll become very belligerent in those things, and you should walk away from them. Walk away and then have nothing more to do with them. Don't continue giving them those things because if you do it, if they did it once, what are they going to do the next time? They're just going to do the same thing over and over again because of the hardness of their heart. So when someone manifests this type of hard-heartedness, then walk away and have nothing more to do with them. Second Peter chapter 2 2 Peter 2, and verse 20. 2 Peter 2, 20. Here's an example of a person who is like a hog or a dog. 
For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So here, this would be an apostate. Someone who temporarily, momentarily escapes the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In terms of the parable of the soils, this would be the second and third soil. The seed sown on the rocky ground and the seed sown on the thorny ground. Right? Isn't it true that momentarily, temporarily, they escape the defilements of this world? Right? Not in a true sense, but in a temporary sense, in a momentary sense. He used to be a drunkard, right? He used to go carousing and do those kinds of things. Then he has temporary faith and he's not going to the bars anymore. He's not going out and getting drunk with his buddies anymore. He's not running around with loose women anymore, okay? He has a momentary reformation, right? And for a moment, he escapes temporarily the defilements of the world because of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then three months later, what happens? He goes right back. He goes back and he's back to the bars. He's back to those kinds of women. He's back to the same people. And it's like it never happened before. And typically the worst state is worse than the first state. They even become more profane in their sins against God. They become entangled and overcome. He says the last state is now worse than the first because now they have knowledge. Now they have understanding. Now they have this experience for two or three or four months, however long it was, when they escaped the defilements of the world, right? They know how much better their life was, but now they have got entangled again. They're more culpable, right? They have more condemnation because they have more knowledge and more understanding. And that's why he says it would have been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It would be better for them on the day of judgment to have never heard the gospel, never known the way of righteousness, never had this momentary escaping from the defilements of the world than to have it temporarily and then reject it and go and turn back to their sin. And then he says, it has happened to them according to the true proverb. Isn't this a true proverb? A dog returns to its vomit. Isn't that true? Do dogs eat their own vomit? Yes, even the most refined dogs, you know, living in a a posh life will eat their own vomit. And a sow, after washing, if you wash a pig, after you wash it, it will always return to wallowing in the mire. And here in this way, a dog eating its vomit and a sow wallowing in the mire is an example. These animals are examples in the filth of what a sinner is like who has temporary reformation, a temporary escape from the defilements of the world. Just like the dog, temporarily he vomits whatever is causing him the malady in his stomach, he vomits it up, but then he ingests it back again. The sow is momentarily clean, but then she goes back to wallowing in the mire, and then she's a filthy creature again, and whatever cleanliness was there 
has been lost and it is gone. So here, this kind of person, then what should we not do for them? We shouldn't have anything to do with them, right? right? We shouldn't have anything to do for, with them. We, we don't go and beg them, plead with them to come back. We don't do that because they're manifesting what kind of a person they are. They're a dog, they're a sow, and this is what they are destined for. Also, Revelation 22. Revelation 22. In verse 15, Revelation twenty-two fifteen 15 says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So here, dogs is again used in a derogatory way. That's how Jesus is using it. That's how Peter uses it. That's how John is using it here in the book of Revelation. They are dogs in terms of their moral character, in terms of what they are spiritually, they are like a filthy dog. Okay, a couple of other. Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. says, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So there, if you reprove a scoffer, what is the scoffer going to do? He's going to hate you. He's going to hate you. Now again, sometimes you can't avoid it, and you have to say something, but I'm not going to go to the bars on Friday nights to go reprove people who are getting drunk. Why would I do that? What value is there going to be in that? Are they going to repent in their drunkenness? No, of course not, right? They're just going to scoff at me and they're going to hate me and they're probably going to slug me in the face. So why would I do that? No, we shouldn't do those types of things. Also, Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 9. 23.9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. For he will despise the wisdom of your words. So don't speak in the hearing of a fool. This is what Jesus did when he was on trial. Yep. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't say anything because he knew what kind of people they were. Until they put him under an oath. And then he would say what was necessary. Mm -hmm. But he just kept silent. Because he wasn't going to speak. Because he knew what kind of people he was dealing with. They're fools. right? And they're going to hate his wisdom. And they're going to turn it and use it against him. So we don't always have to open our mouth. Right? There are times when we should, and then yeah. there are other times when we have to be quiet because these kinds of people are deranged, delusional. They're madmen. They're going to take our words, and they're going to use it against us. They'll take our holy words, turn them and twist them, and use them against us. Yeah. Okay, then also, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14 says, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say, it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
So there, here they are going from village to village. And the expectation is as they go to village to village is they're going to go there to preach the gospel. They're going to preach the truth. But if they get to a village and the people turn against them, begin to blaspheme God and reject them, are they to just continue going on there? Just have hope, just believe, right? Believe in the goodness of men that one of them's going to turn, right? What if, what if it just takes one more time? Is that what they're supposed to do? No. He says, leave. If they don't receive you, if they don't listen to your words, leave the city, and as you leave, shake the dust off of your feet in protest against them to show them this city is so detestable to me, even the dust from your city I don't want on my feet. This is how detestable you are to me and to God because that you, they would not listen to the word of God. This we have an example of in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. These are the words of Jesus that people don't take seriously today. They find a way to mitigate, to excuse them away, because they don't want to believe that Jesus would be so harsh, that he would be so demanding of people, that Jesus would tell his disciples to shake the dust off their feet in protest against these people. But this is what Jesus taught, and it was practiced by the holy apostles, like the apostle Paul. Verse 51, or verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them, against them and went to Iconium. So there, they shake the dust off their feet in protest against them. Then one last passage as a cross-reference here would be 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verse 16. First John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. So here, the Apostle John is telling them, there are some people who you pray for if they're committing a sin, and you pray that God would give them repentance. Right. right? If they're committing a sin not leading to death, then you pray to God on behalf of them, and this is a brother, a brother who commits a sin, right? who stumbles and falls into sin, a sin not leading to death, then you pray to God for his life and God will answer your prayer. God will answer your prayer and God will restore this one through repentance, okay? But if he's committing a sin leading to death, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to pray for them? No. He says, don't pray for them. So if we pray for them, are we sinning? According to the word of God, we are. Because he says, don't pray for them. Now, what would be the sin leading to death? That's what we read earlier in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, right? When the one has a temporary reformant, a reformation, right? He escapes the defilements of the world, 
And then after his escape, he goes back to his sin. He apostatizes. He walks away from the faith, like Judas Iscariot. You shouldn't, they shouldn't be praying for Judas whenever he betrayed Christ, because he's manifesting himself to be such a great sinner that God is determined to judge him. Right? God is determined to judge him. And this will happen as well in the churches. When people come in and then they walk away and they want nothing more to do with the church, with the ministry, with what is going on, right? Because of righteousness sake, then those kinds of people, we shake the dust off our feet and we have nothing to do with them. And here, we don't even pray for them. We don't pray for their salvation. We don't pray for their repentance. Right. Now, we should pray for them, but what should we pray? For God's judgment, right? That's where imprecations come in. The imprecatory prayers that you find all throughout the Bible. So there is a place for that. And that would be when someone manifests their doggery or hoggery, okay? That they are a dog or a hog in their <laughs> spiritual status, okay? So we should not have anything to do with that person. And I'm not making this up. This is Jesus, right? right? Jesus saying this. And... 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 is the apostle whom Jesus loved, right? The love apostle is the one saying, don't pray for this person. And God told Jeremiah, go read Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah multiple times, yep. don't pray for this people. Do not pray for them because I want to judge them. I'm not going to save them. If you pray for their salvation, I'm not going to hear you. So he told him, do not pray for this people. So again, when that arises, then that's what we have to do. Okay? Okay, verse 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Here, Jesus is teaching concerning prayer, right? The way that we ought to pray. Ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you, right? One of the means that God has ordained and established for God to give good gifts to his children is we have to go to God and ask for them, right. right? God knows that we need them. God will give those things to us, but he requires us to come and ask God for those things that we need from God for our Christian life, for our salvation. Now here, he doesn't mean this as a, as a blanket statement. No. Ask whatever you want and it's going to be given to you. There are people, deranged people, who will take these kinds of passages that way. You want a million dollars? Ask for a million dollars. And as long as you have enough faith, God will give it to you, right? You want good, perfect health? You're sick and you want to be healed? Ask. And as long as you have enough faith, God will give it to you, right? That way they always have an out, right? What is the out they can always blame it on? Well, you don't have enough faith, right? That's why you don't have it is because you don't have enough faith. I have enough faith. Actually, it's because I've been milking the people, right? I've duped the people to give me their money. That's why I got a million dollars. Not because God gave it to me, not that all things don't come from God, but in this sense, they're defrauding people and they're taking it in an evil way. They're not receiving it as a blessing from God. It's filthy lucre, and it right. will be used on the day of judgment to condemn them, right? To condemn them 
on the day of judgment. So here, he's not meaning blanket statement. Whatever you want, just ask God and God's going to give it to you. As if God is a genie, which is how most people think of God, who is there to give me what I want, what my heart desires. That's not the way it is. Rather, when our desires are rightly aligned with the will of God, right? When we're asking consistent with the will of God, then we can ask God and he will give us what we ask. Then we can seek God and we will find what we're seeking for. Then we will knock on the door and the door will be opened up to us. And what are the things that we should be praying for? Well, we just went through that in the Lord's Prayer earlier in Matthew chapter 6. He taught us what we should be praying for, that God's name would be hallowed on the earth, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that God would give us our daily needs, right? not our daily wants, but our daily needs in terms of our daily bread, and that he would forgive us of our sins, and that he would lead us not into temptation. These are the things that we need to be praying for. And when we're praying those things with faith, then God will answer us and he will give to us the desires of our heart because our desires are good desires. He's not going to give us the evil desires of the heart, right? If a man desires lust and desires to commit adultery or fornication and he prays to God, is God going to answer that? No, of course not. He's not going to answer that prayer. No way would God ever answer that. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and hope. This is probably the most misquoted verse in the Old Testament right here, okay? Uh, He doesn't mean uh, every graduation, every graduate who graduates from high school is going to have wonderful plans, a perfect future, and they're all going to be successful and prosper in life. That's not the way it goes down. Here, he's talking to the remnant, to the believers in Babylon. And that God's going to restore them back to Jerusalem for the sake of whom? For the sake of Christ. To bring Christ into the world that he might die on the cross for our sins and be raised for our justification. Those are the plans that God has for his people. Plans for their salvation, right? For their sanctification and for their ultimate glorification. For our welfare, for the righteous, but not for the wicked. He doesn't have plans for their welfare. He has plans for their calamity and ultimately for their destruction and they have no hope and no future only we the righteous have hope and future then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and i will listen to you you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart right they're going to cry out to god they're going to pray to god god's going to listen they're going to seek but who are they seeking And who are they going to find? You will seek me, me, the Lord, and you will find me, the Lord, when you search for me with all of your heart. When you have a true, sincere heart and you're seeking for God. This is what we read in Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Well, what is the desire? It's the Lord, right? right? The Lord is what I desire. He is what I want above all things. 
And if we desire the Lord and we desire his salvation and we want the forgiveness of sins and we're asking for those things and we want to live a holy and a righteous life and we're seeking that with all of our heart, of course God is going to give those things to us. And if we want wisdom from God, understanding a discerning heart so that we can discern between good and evil so that we might live a righteous life, well, is God going to withhold that good thing from us? Of course, of course not. He will give to us what we desire and what it is that we see. This is as we, well, we didn't read it earlier. We were in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, 14, he tells us there that we have to pray according to the will of God. Right. He will give to us whatever we ask as long as what we ask is according to his will. And how do we know the will of God? How are we going to know what we should pray for? Just whatever pops into our mind? No way. How about by watching television? Is that going to help us know the will of God? No. It's going to be reading the word of God, being with the saints, yep. those who have a right mind, talking with one another so that we know and help each other understand what is the will of God so that we know how to pray rightly. Verse 9. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Right? What man? What man among you? Right? Is there a man like this? If his son asks for a loaf, for a piece of bread, would give him a stone. No father will do that. Even unbelieving fathers don't do that. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? No, of course not. This never happens. I mean, rarely you have some people who are so deviant that they might do something like that. But even amongst unbelievers, even amongst Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, even atheists, they love their children in a sense. And if their children ask for bread, if they're hungry and they say, Father, I'm hungry. Can I have something to eat? The dad is not going to go give them a stone, say, eat, eat this rock, boy. Or if they want a fish, they say, oh, here, here's a poisonous snake. No father is going to do that. Okay, so we all know this. This is generally true. Even nature, natural revelation, even teaches Gentiles that they ought to love their children and that they ought to give good gifts to their children. And here, we're not talking about Gentiles. We're talking about Christians. Right. That's who he's talking to here, disciples. So if Gentiles know this, then certainly we, believers, we know that fathers ought to love their children and they ought to give good gifts to their children, meaning if their children are hungry and they have a need, the father should meet that need with what is appropriate and what is good, right? We all know and understand this. Verse 11, if then you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Right. Here, the argument is lesser to greater. You, right? You people, right? You, even here, you believers, you saints, in comparison to God, are we good or evil? evil. We are evil in comparison to God. Yet even we, who are evil in comparison to God, know how to give good gifts to our children, then doesn't God, the Father of lights, the Father of love, 
Doesn't our Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to his children, to give to them what they need, right? What is best for them, what is appropriate for them, right? Again, not necessarily what they want, because there are times where children, they want M&Ms for dinner, right? They want chocolate for dinner. They want uh, yeah, all sorts of sweets and sugars for dinner. And is that what they need? No, we know that that's not good for them. It's not healthy. Their teeth are going to rot out. They're going to have a tummy ache later. They're not going to, it's not going to be good. That they need good fruits and vegetables and meats and those types of things. And then we give them what they need. Well, this is what God does. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. So if God is a giver of good gifts, if this is how he behaves toward his children, then why would we not go to him and ask him for those good gifts? That's right. the point he's making. Yeah. Children go and they ask their parents all the time for stuff. You can't get them to quit asking for stuff. They're always badgering you constantly, wanting something from you, wanting your time and attention, wanting you to spend money on them. This is what kids do. They always want something, especially the boys. They're always hungry. They always need something to eat. And what happens 99% of the time? When they come and ask for something to eat, you give, you give them something. Right. You give them something for their stomach. Well, if they do that and we supply their needs, then why don't we go to our Father in heaven more, pray to him more, and ask him to give us those things that we need for our salvation, for our spiritual life. Right? That's the what he's that's the point he's making here. We should be like that towards God. And what is it that God will give. Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, the corresponding uh, passage in Luke's gospel, tells us what God will give. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Right. So what is the good gift? Who is the good gift that God gives to His children? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's what we should be praying for God. Yeah. Right? Not that we have the Spirit and we lose the Spirit and we get the Spirit back. Not in that sense. But He means it in the sense that the Spirit would have more control, would exercise greater influence over our life, so that we are walking by the Spirit, and He's giving us more strength, more grace, more wisdom, more understanding, so that we are progressing and growing in our salvation and doing the will of God. Right. Also, notice here, isn't this all taking place before the day of Pentecost? Yeah. <laughs> but what is Jesus expecting His disciples? Before the day of Pentecost, who are they supposed to be asking for? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit wasn't born on the day of Pentecost. He existed before then. And here, even Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit, not after the day of Pentecost, but right now, before the day of Pentecost. Right. He's telling them to pray and seek these things. Okay, one last passage. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And let's see, we'll start in verse 5. James 1, 5. 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So there, if you lack wisdom, well, who is the source of all wisdom? Who possesses it all? God does. Then go ask God and he'll give to you. He will give to you generously without reproach. Is God going to rebuke us for asking for wisdom? Of course not. No, of course not. He loves that, that we would be desiring wisdom and understanding. And he's going to give it to us. But we have to ask with faith and not doubting. We can't be a double-minded man who facilitates between various opinions. But we have to be a single-minded man and pray in that way. And then also verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So there, every good gift comes from God. Comes from God, and he's the one that we should go and ask and seek from, and then he will give to us. Right. Okay? Everything that we need. Okay, well, we're going to stop there for tonight because verse 12 is a very important one, and we don't want to rush through that. We have a lot of cross-references for it. So we'll go ahead and stop there for tonight, and then we'll pick up next week in verse 12. And we do have a few minutes for any questions or comments. So anybody have any questions about the Bible study tonight?